This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And our next story comes from our regular contributor, Kent Nurburn. Kent is the author of Letters to My Son, A Father's Wisdom on Manhood, Life, and Love which is a compilation of letters written to his own son should Kent not live to see him into manhood. Today, Kent shares with us another one of his lessons. It's called Craig's Lesson. Most young people I know, and many who are older, live in a quiet crisis of identity about their place in the world. Some, especially young women, spend their lives submerging their interests into the interests of others until they are not sure whether they have any identity at all. Others, very often young men, try desperately to impress others by parading their accomplishments and sense of self-importance in an attempt to make themselves seem somehow whole and finished. Still others of both sexes spend their time passing a brittle judgment on others they perceive as different or lesser than they are in an attempt to establish their own identity at the expense of others. At the heart of each is the fear that someone else might pass judgment on who they are and that they will be unmasked or found out for the uncertainty that is at their core. When I was younger, I was as played with this fear as anyone else. Often I would dare not to act for fear of someone judging me. Other times, I forced myself into the center of discussions in a pitiful attempt to make sure I was recognized for everything I thought or did. I excluded others. I demeaned others. I pointed out their weaknesses and inconsistencies as a way of raising myself by lowering those around me. Sometimes I was aware of it. Other times, I was not. It took a chance comment by a friend of mine long after I had reached adulthood before I could begin to lift myself out of the uncertainty that surrounded my sense of self. Craig was a close friend of mine. He was one of those people who brought energy and life into any room he entered. He had an uncanny ability to focus his entire attention on you while you were talking, so you suddenly felt more important and more responsible than you had before he started listening. He made you better by being around him, people loved him. He and I went to graduate school together. We had a lot in common. We both were having women troubles. We both were seekers. We both were perhaps too aware of our own foibles for our own good. But he lived in the sunlight of the spirit, while I lived under a full moon. We were like mirrors to each other, revealing dimensions of our beings that otherwise we never would have seen. One sunny autumn day, we were sitting in our study areas, half talking and half working on some now forgotten projects for our graduate degrees. I was staring out the window when I noticed one of my professors walking across the parking lot. He had been away all summer, and we had not parted on good terms. I had taken great offense at some suggestion he had made, and had, in turn, given great offense in my answer. We had not seen each other since that day. Damn it, I said to Craig, I don't want to see him. 
Why not? Craig asked. I explained what had happened the previous spring. We left on bad terms, I said. Besides, the guy just doesn't like me. Craig walked over and looked down at the passing figure. I think you got it wrong, he said. You're the one who's turning away, and you're just doing that because you're afraid. He probably thinks you don't like him, so he's not acting warm toward you. People are like that. They like people who like them. If you show him you're interested in him, he'll be interested in you. Go down and talk to him. Craig's words smarted. I walked tentatively down the stairs into the parking lot. I mustered my best smile and warmest feelings, and greeted my professor and asked how his summer had been. He looked at me, genuinely surprised at my warmth, and put his arm over my shoulder. We walked off talking. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see Craig at the window, smiling broadly. It was so simple, yet I had never seen it. I was coming to all my encounters with a fear that others were judging me, when, in fact, they were afraid I was judging them. We were all living in a fear of being judged by the other, while the empty space between us was waiting to be filled by a simple gesture of honest caring. People like people who like them. Those words allowed me to see the world through new eyes. Instead of seeing judgment in the eyes of others, I saw need. Not deep yawning need, but the simple human need to be noticed and cared about. I began to realize that most people were not waiting to judge the adequacy of my actions. They were waiting for the chance to share something about themselves. Craig knew this. He basked in people as if basking in sunlight. Their lives warmed him and they loved sharing themselves with him. That was what made him so special. From that day forward, I turned my life around. It was not easy. I still spent too much time fearing the judgment of others and I still got hurt when arrogant people took advantage of my openness and used it either to laugh at me or to demean me. But I found that by taking the chance and liking other people, the world opened up before me. I discovered a world of people I would never have known had I kept only to my own interests. Car mechanics, cashiers, crazy people, thieves, all had their stories to tell. The wealthy, the poor, the powerful, and the lonely, all were as full of dreams and doubts as I was. Farmers talked to me about tractors. Scientists spoke to me about atoms. I learned what it is like to grow up on the Australian coast, and I learned how it feels to pack boxes all day long. If you are the one who reaches out, if you are the one who dares to like people, the walls around you will fall away. And great job on that, Monty. A special thanks to Kent Nurborn. He's the author of Letters to My Son, A Father's Wisdom on Manhood, Life, and Love. People are like that. They like people who like them. It was so simple. He said, I just never seen it. And we'd love to hear your stories. This one's called Craig's Lesson. But we'd love to hear stories from you about people who've influenced your life. Again, go to OurAmericanStories.com. Send them to us. They are some of our favorite stories. Again, Kent Nurburn's story, Craig's Lesson, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the History Guy. His videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages on YouTube. The History Guy is also heard here at Our American Stories. Titanic Thompson led a wild life, always chasing the next big score, including cheating the infamous mobster Al Capone. Here's the History Guy with the story of Titanic Thompson, the greatest cheat of all time. A gambler once bet Al Capone that he could throw a lemon all the way to the top of a five-story building in a single throw. After Capone took that crazy bet, the man walked up to a street vendor and picked up a lemon and went to throw it. But sensing that this might be some sort of trick, Capone instead picked up his own lemon, squeezed all the juice out of it, handed it to the man and said, no, throw this. Unfazed, the man took a long running jump and threw as hard as he could. And to Al Capone's shock, the lemon went all the way to the top of the building and landed on the roof. What Capone didn't know is that that gambler had already palmed the squished fruit that Capone had given him and had instead thrown a lemon that was full of buckshot that he had placed on the vendor earlier in preparation for his outrageous bet. That gambler was a man named Alvin Thomas, but he went by the name Titanic Thompson. And among the people of his profession, he was truly a titan. The history of who is perhaps the world's greatest wagerer deserves to be remembered. Alvin Clarence Thomas was born in 1893 in rural Missouri near the small town of Monnet. The last name, Thompson, that he would adopt for most of his adult life came from a later newspaper misprint that he embraced as his own. According to the family history, his father was gambling the night Alvin was born and didn't see his new son until he came home the next day. Apparently his father couldn't handle the new responsibilities that came with having a child, so he took whatever cash he could find in the house and left. Alvin's mother didn't spend time bemoaning her fate. She quickly remarried and ensured Alvin had a roof over his head. Thomas's new stepfather wasn't particularly fond of the boy, but taught him how to play cards and roll dice. Alvin took to the games far more quickly than he absorbed anything else. Later in life, Thompson said he couldn't read, but numbers and odds always made sense to him. He spent hours sitting alone in his room, teaching himself to adeptly shuffle cards, practicing dealing from the bottom of the deck more quickly than the eye could follow. Thompson developed his own method of marking cards by putting spots on the back or bending the edges to be able to tell face cards by feel. He practiced throwing playing cards into a hat over and over again or tossing dice, figuring out how to hold them and make them land like he wanted. Thompson would write down the results of his dice throws, calculating odds and combinations long before others considered gambling a science of sorts. But he wanted more than science. Thompson strove to elevate gambling to an art form. He practiced shooting, jumping, and other simple skills like throwing coins into a cup to the point where his execution of them made him seem extraordinary. According to Kevin Cook, author of the book Titanic Thompson, The Man Who Bet on Everything, Thompson said, if a thing's hard to do, most folks are too lazy to do it. That puts me one up on them. Alvin left home at the age of 16. He only had 50 cents to his name, but he wasn't worried. He would always say, I've been broke, but never for more than six hours at a time. He promised his mother that he wouldn't drink or smoke, and he kept those promises, although he engaged in numerous other vices. When he was in high stakes games, he would drink water or milk while the other high rollers were dulling their senses with alcohol. And that was just fine by him. In Monnet, Thompson discovered a man selling maps on the street. He offered to sell maps for a percentage of the money and soon was wandering door to door selling maps. When the luster wore off that job, Thompson joined a sharpshooter named Captain Adam Henry Bogardus and his Bogardus Miracle Medicine Show. 
Thompson wowed Bogardus with his shooting abilities, and together, they built Roll Americans out of their money with promises of medicine that could cure almost anything that was wrong with you, from gout to crossed eyes. In actuality, the medicine was a mix of cocaine and alcohol, which probably gave people bursts of energy, if nothing else. Thompson drew attention to the show by bragging he could shoot a silver dollar out of the air with one shot. The trick was to substitute a real silver dollar with a pre-punctured one and throw it in the air while pulling the trigger. Thompson was already able to palm items like a pro and fooled audiences with the trick. After he left the traveling medicine show, Thompson began crisscrossing the country looking for games and offering unsuspecting people propositions that he was certain to win. It was in a pool hall in Joplin, Missouri in 1912 that Thompson added the Titanic to his name. He had just won a couple of hundred dollars off of a local pool player when, on his way out the door, he read a sign offering $200 to the person who could jump over the pool table without touching it. Thompson announced to the room that he'd take the bat. He walked out and returned later with a mattress that he positioned on the other side of the pool table. Then, taking a running start, he threw himself over the table, head first, and landed on the mattress on the other side without touching the table and collecting on the bat. An onlooker asked what the gambler's name was, and, according to legend, another replied, It must be Titanic, because he sinks everybody. Thompson had dedication and skill, but he wasn't above shifting the odds with a bit of guile. Once he heard of a skilled horseshoe pitcher named Frank Jackson, who bragged that he would bet any amount on a game of horseshoes. Thompson saw opportunity, but there was a problem. He'd never played horseshoes. He practiced and practiced until he was ready. He baited Jackson by telling some kids he could beat anyone at horseshoes. As he planned, Jackson showed up after he heard of the boast. Thompson offered to play for $10, but Jackson balked, saying he played for real money. So Thompson offered to play for $10,000, saying it was all the money I have and flashing a wad of bills. The hook was set. They played, and Thompson ringed three in a row, while Jackson's throws kept coming up, a foot short. Jackson lost $10,000, wondering why his throws were so weak that day. Apparently, Jackson never found out that Thompson had set the stakes 41 feet apart, a foot more than the 40-foot regulation. More serious trouble found Thompson when he killed a man with a hammer in 1910. It had been a good night for Thompson before the killing. He had won a riverboat through gambling and was playing craps on that same boat with Jim Johnson. Thompson's girlfriend, Nellie, was with him as he won roll after roll. Johnson, drunk and out of sorts, accused Thompson of cheating and threw him overboard into the dark river. By the time Thompson climbed back on the boat, Johnson had torn Nellie's clothes in multiple places and was threatening to take out his frustrations with Thompson on her. Thompson was having none of it. He beat Johnson about the head with a hammer and threw the unconscious man into the river, where he drowned. The local sheriff showed up to sort out the trouble and offered Thompson a choice. He'd either come to jail and face charges of murder, or give the sheriff the boat and get out of town. Thompson gave up his boat and left. The four other men Thompson would kill during his lifetime, he claimed, were trying to rob him. He got off every time. Perhaps it was this early violent experience on the river that convinced Thompson that women had no place on the road with him. But throughout his life, Thompson refused to take any of his five wives on his travels. Thompson preferred his wives to be young and beautiful, even in his later years. His first marriage to 18-year-old Nora Trushel ended in divorce when he refused to get a normal job to spend time at home with her or to stop seeing other women while on the road. Alice Kane, his second wife, was a con man's kindred spirit. Thompson said he met black-haired Alice when she tried to pick his pocket in Pittsburgh. She was 17 years old and he was 25. 
he brought her an enormous diamond ring and married her a month after their initial meeting. A week after their first anniversary, Thompson was drafted and ordered to report to Camp Zachary Taylor in Kentucky. He was made a sergeant and used his position to teach the other soldiers how to play five-card stud and craps. The First World War ended and Thompson went home without having to serve overseas. He used some of his gains to buy a new home for his long-suffering mother. Thompson didn't hesitate to take money from anyone he beat. In fact, Thompson sometimes thought that arrogant rich folks had the fleecing coming to them. He hustled and conned his way through poker games, craps, pool games, propositions, and a game he showed enormous promise for, golf. I went purely crazy over golf, Thompson said later. He could play naturally left-handed, so a typical con would be play a golfer right-handed and then offer double or nothing to play another game, this time with his left hand. He usually won. The itinerant gambling lifestyle faded away with the invention of the modern era of telegraphs and the professional gamblers of Las Vegas. Thompson said you couldn't cheat in Vegas with their waxy cards and video cameras. He was paid to appear at the first World Series of Poker, and he co-hosted with Chill Wills, the actor. Thompson's wife, Alice, died young after she was hit by a car while Thompson was away at work. He married three more times, divorcing each. His final wife, Jeanette Bennett, said they divorced so Thompson could afford to go into a retirement home. He had gambled his entire life, but was living off his Social Security checks because he hadn't invested any of it. Thompson died in Texas at the retirement home in May of 1974. He was 80 years old. The legendary Titanic Thompson left a memory of a life spent on the road, always in search of the next big score, and a man whose only love was Lady Luck. And you've been listening to the history guy telling the story of Titanic Thompson, the man who bet on everything. And in my life, I've had a couple of friends like that who would bet on everything and anything. And they're fun to be with, but watch your wallet and watch your life. And special thanks to Greg Hangler, as always, for working with The History Guy and bringing these stories to you. If you want more stories of forgotten history, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. Titanic Thompson's story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And today's story comes to us from Rebecca Brown and her attorney, Dan Albin. While traveling with $82,000, her dad's life savings, Rebecca would meet the full force of something called civil forfeiture. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with more on the story. Rebecca Brown's story began with an ordinary flight out of Boston to visit her family in Pittsburgh for her brother's wedding. August 24th of 2019, I flew from Boston to Pittsburgh. 
with a return flight scheduled Monday morning at 8 a.m. I needed to be back for meetings later that, that morning, so it was imperative that I make this a quick trip. It was to celebrate my youngest brother's wedding reception, so all of our family would be together, and it was a great occasion for us all to meet. And while Rebecca's family was all together, she decided to go over finances with her father. I went, as I normally do, as my father's power of attorney, to his bank to pick up his statements so that we could review them together to see if there were any abnormalities. We had noticed over the recent months prior to my visit that there had been some fraud on his accounts. My dad did not want to press charges as this was a family issue. During our review of the statements, we did notice more fraud and uh, my dad said to me that in addition to the money that he had in the bank, which was only from his railroad retirement, he had recovered cash that he and his parents before him had squirreled away in the basement of his home, in the rafters and in the walls. So I asked my dad how much money was there and he said it was about $90,000 that he had given it to my brother for safekeeping because he didn't feel safe in his apartment with that much money. So he had asked me as his power of attorney to bring that money up to Boston to set up a joint account. He did not want to leave it in Pittsburgh because the person that would help him take care of that was the same person that we were aware was stealing money. To that end, we felt, and especially my father felt, that bringing the money to Boston and depositing it into an account with both of our names on it was the most prudent way for us to manage it. I took it from the Tupperware container where my father and brother had stored it and put it into a pocketbook, a small pocketbook, that I placed on the top of my open canvas beach bag that I had used to travel as a carry-on. I didn't really think much of it. Rebecca didn't think much of it because before stepping into the airport, she and her brothers had looked up the legality of carrying such a large amount of money onto a domestic flight. And as it turns out, this is perfectly legal. So she set her plan into motion. I headed off to the airport on Monday morning, put the bag on the TSA screening checkpoint, and as it went through the screener, the agent said, what is that? And I said, oh, that's cash. I'm taking that from Pennsylvania to Boston for my father. So the TSA agent asked me several questions. Where was I going? What was I doing with the money? Asked me to show him my my ID and my tickets. I showed him that this was a round trip. I even had pictures from the reception on my phone, all you know, very legitimately documented of what I was doing. So I was there for maybe 10 minutes. He said, the agent said that he needed to call one of the state troopers. So the state trooper then came along and asked me exactly the same questions. They took a copy of my boarding pass and license. So I was there now probably 20 minutes. All the while other passengers are passing by and, and staring at me and it was quite embarrassing. This state trooper then said that he had a call for his lieutenant, who again asked me the exact same questions after it took him quite a while to get there. They asked me the exact same questions again and then finally said, okay, you're, you can go ahead and go. 
when I sat at the gate, I opened my computer. It was probably maybe 20 minutes until my flight was getting ready to board. And I opened my computer, started to do some work. The whole time my bag is sitting next to me. And I look up and see the state trooper that had originally come to interview me, accompanied by a gentleman in a blue polo shirt, approached me and said they had some questions for me. I followed them, which was still within earshot of all the other passengers. So again, quite embarrassing. They had already seen me go through the TSA checkpoint and be questioned, and now here I am being pulled aside. This whole time the plane is starting to board, so I'm getting quite nervous. As I had mentioned earlier, it was I had an important meeting that I had to get to that morning. So this agent questioned me about the money again, said that he wanted to verify my story with my father, I said, my dad is almost 80 years old. He sleeps until mid-afternoon, and there's no way he's going to be coherent at 7.30 in the morning. The agent insisted that I call him. I did call my dad. I had only a second to say, Dad, this gentleman wants to talk to you about the money. He was very confused. The agent spoke to him in a very terse manner, certainly not the respectful tone that you would want for your parents, regardless of what the situation is. My dad deserves better than that. He turned to me after talking to my dad for just a moment or so, said, your stories don't match and we're going to seize the cash. At this point, of course, I said, well, of course the stories don't match. He's not even awake. He normally sleeps till one, two, sometimes even three o'clock. He is almost 80. Regardless, this agent was not taking no for an answer. He sat down next to me, said, can I go through your bags? He put his hand through my, the same carry-on where I had the money. He didn't go through my work bag, which I thought was very odd. You know, if I had had more money, perhaps I'd put it there. I, I'm not quite sure. I was very clear with him that I wasn't trying to hide anything, that, you know, as far as I was under the impression that it was perfectly legal to carry this. I have no criminal history. My dad doesn't have any criminal history. In fact, the agent asked if my dad did drugs or if anyone in my family did drugs. And I was just so offended and so nervous and afraid. And I'm not an easily intimidated person, but this is my dad's life savings that he entrusted to me to take care of. And here it is, this stranger is taking this 80 plus thousand dollars and saying, we're seizing this for no reason, and gave me a piece of paper with nothing written on it, not even his name, and just says cash with the DEA header. And to add insult to injury, the DEA told her that her cash would be permanently forfeited to the government via a legal process called civil asset forfeiture. We'll learn more about what that is shortly. But in the meantime, Rebecca began her search for justice. And then I started my Google search. And of course, a ton of attorneys popped up who are willing to take your case, but they want a percentage of the money. Of course, I mean, everybody wants to be paid, um, but it wasn't my money to pay. Luckily, I happened upon uh, IJ and they have been a godsend. And of course, IJ is the Institute for Justice, who is representing Rebecca and her father, Terry, pro bono, 
To find out more about what they do, go to ij.org. That's ij.org. It's one of our favorite organizations protecting private property interests and the rights of ordinary Americans to not have stuff like this happen to them as it relates to their own government. When we come back, more of Rebecca Brown's civil forfeiture story, her father's story too, and, well, not a particularly good American story, here on Our American Stories. We continue with Our American Stories and Rebecca Brown's story. And when we last left off, Rebecca was looking for representation after having $82,000 of her father's life savings taken from her by the DEA, who then told her they wanted to permanently keep it in a process called civil asset forfeiture, despite the fact that she committed no crime. Here's Rebecca's attorney, Dan Albin, of the Institute for Justice, with more. Civil forfeiture is the legal process by which the government can both seize and then permanently keep your money without even charging you with a crime. It's used by law enforcement agents, typically for supposed drug enforcement efforts or customs enforcement efforts. But in the vast majority of cases, no one is charged with a crime, let alone convicted of a crime. That being said, there is a role for forfeiture. It's called criminal forfeiture. It happens after someone is convicted of a crime as part of the sentencing. That person can not only be sentenced to prison or given a fine, they can also have the proceeds of their criminal activity forfeited. But civil forfeiture does not necessarily involve any conviction and instead can be done even without charges brought. And so that's what happened to Rebecca and thousands and thousands of other people like her where law enforcement uses the drug uh, war as an excuse to seize money from people, regardless of whether there's any actual proof that they're involved in any illegal activity, and then keep that money basically because they they are traveling with a large amount of money. We know this happens at airports nationwide, TSA and DEA and Customs and Border Protection and ICE are all involved in these seizures of cash at airports simply because someone is traveling with a large amount of cash. Now, the fact that someone is traveling with a large amount of cash does not indicate in any way that they're up to no good or involved in criminal activity. It's perfectly legal to travel with large amounts of cash within the United States, and there are lots of legitimate reasons to do so. People often take cash with them, for instance, to buy a vehicle, especially a used vehicle. People often take cash to put earnest money deposits down for real estate or even make a down payment for real estate sometimes. People take cash to buy equipment for their business, particularly used equipment. Basically, anytime you're doing business with a stranger who you you haven't interacted with before, don't have an ongoing business relationship with, cash is often a favored way of doing business because you can show up, you can negotiate exactly what the payment will be on the spot once you've had a chance to inspect whatever it is you're buying. And then they don't have to worry about whether your check's going to clear or, you know, whether the something that you've given them is, is fake. Instead, they just have the cash in hand and the deal is done. And so there are lots and lots of legitimate reasons why people travel with cash. And unfortunately, law enforcement preys on those people 
pulling them over in highway interdiction efforts and stopping them in the airport, usually as they go through TSA screening, because TSA screening identifies cash. And when someone has what TSA considers to be a large amount of cash, which is usually about $10,000 or more, TSA will flag that person and hold them until law enforcement uh, officials arrive on the scene. And then typically that person's money will be seized for suspicion of some unspecified criminal activity, typically just generic drug trafficking. And in the vast majority of cases, that person will not be charged with anything. They'll be allowed to continue traveling and they will never be charged or convicted of a crime, but they'll lose their money. And that's exactly what was happening to Rebecca and her father, going up against an assumption that resulted in his hard-earned money simply going to the government. An assumption that they were drug dealers. So what they will say, and what I'm sure they will say about Rebecca and really any traveler, is they'll say, well, this person fits the profile of a drug courier. First, because they're traveling from one major drug trafficking location, Pittsburgh, to another major drug trafficking location, Boston. And of course, any traveler at any airport is flying from one city to another, and just about any city in the United States is going to be considered by DEA a major drug trafficking location. So all they're really saying is this person is flying between two cities. Another thing they will say is this person packaged their money in a way that is indicative of how drug couriers package their money. And what that means is the person had rubber bands around the bills, or the person had their bills in envelopes. All of those things, DEA will say, is indicative of the profile of a drug courier. Of course, that's also how anyone would carry money. If you were traveling with any amount of money, you would either rubber band it or put it in envelopes or put it in a bank bag or do all of, all of those things. They'll say that if your trip is only for a short duration, that is indicative of the profile of a drug courier. So Rebecca, for instance, flew in on a Friday and flew out on a Monday. She was just there for the weekend to see her father. I'm sure they would say, well, this fits the profile of a drug courier because she was on a short duration. All of that is nonsense. None of those things actually amount to probable cause. And so th that sort of thing happens all the time. Uh, law enforcement makes assumptions about why people have cash and uses those assumptions to take that money away from people and generally permanently forfeit it because the sad reality of civil forfeiture is 90% of cases are resolved administratively. They never see the inside of a courtroom. Someone has their money seized and it's processed by the agency that seizes it. The person either doesn't understand how to file the forms correctly, isn't able to find an attorney, is confused, gives up. There are so many different reasons why people fail to effectively contest the administrative forfeiture of their property. But the vast majority of these cases never go to court. And of even the 10% that do go to court, the vast majority of those are settled. So um, there is just a very, very few instances in which courts are actually ruling on civil forfeiture cases. So to help people see their day in court who've been impacted by civil forfeiture, the Institute for Justice started a class action lawsuit against those who do it in airports and exceed their authority and violate the Constitution. 
When we filed suit on behalf of Rebecca, we actually brought it as a federal class action lawsuit against both TSA and DEA. The uh, lawsuit against both TSA and DEA uh, says that they are violating the Fourth Amendment rights of air travelers by seizing cash without probable cause. TSA temporarily seizes the cash while a traveler is going through TSA screening and then calls law enforcement, often DEA, to the scene. And then DEA tries to permanently seize and forfeit that cash, again, without probable cause and simply based on the presumption that a certain threshold amount of cash is involved in drug trafficking. We also brought a claim against TSA for exceeding their statutory authority. Uh, TSA does not actually have law enforcement authority to, um, for instance, enforce drug laws. TSA screeners are exclusively charged with transportation security screening. And the only reason they're allowed under the Fourth Amendment and under Supreme Court precedent to conduct that screening is to do so for the limited administrative purpose of making sure that bombs and weapons don't get on airplanes. TSA screeners are not allowed to be involved in general law enforcement activities. They are supposed to exclusively focus on whether or not a passenger has something that would endanger the safety of an airplane. Despite that, TSA regularly exceeds that statutory authority by holding on to cash when they find it, calling law enforcement to the scene, and detaining the traveler and their carry-on luggage until law enforcement arrives. That is in excess of what TSA is allowed to do. It violates their statutory authority, and we have sued over that as well. But what about Rebecca's case? Did she become one of the many who simply lost their money? Or did she get it back? Fortunately, about a month after we brought that lawsuit, DEA agreed to finally return the money some seven months after it had seized the money from her at the airport. So Terry and Rebecca got their money back, although they did not receive interest. And so we are continuing to bring a claim for the interest on their uh, seized property, as well as a claim against the DEA agent who violated uh, Rebecca's Fourth Amendment rights by detaining her and seizing the money without having probable cause. Those claims continue despite the fact that DEA has, has now finally returned Rebecca and Terry's money. And great job on that piece by Monty Montgomery. A special thanks to Dan Albin of the Institute for Justice. Go to ij.org to learn more about what they do. My own cash story, 1999, the Kentucky Derby. I had the honor and privilege of going to my with my friends to the Meadowlands to do a simulcast bet on the Derby. And we play trifectas and superfectas. And this particular year, the superfecta, a $2 bet, paid $24,000. And we had the winning bet at $64 for a $2 bet. The haul was over $40,000 for the eight guys in my beach house. I didn't have a bag to take it home. And on the Garden State Parkway, I got pulled over. How to explain that much cash in your back trunk? We're allowed to carry this money, folks, and there are legal reasons why we do it. That was mine. We are so grateful for the work that Institute for Justice does for ordinary Americans who sometimes are at the mercy of law enforcement officials who break the law. And we tell those stories here because they're important ones to tell. And there are things we can do about it when our rights are violated. And that's why the rule of law matters in this country, folks. Because without it, imagine being in another country and being me with my little hall 
and I'm in some foreign country where there is no rule of law. That money's disappearing, and there's an illegal search of my car, and no one wants to hear the explanation. The money's just gone. Rebecca Brown's civil forfeiture story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And today we have a story of friendship from a former Marine, Jason Porter. Here's Jason with a story of his best friend, Forrest Johnson, a.k.a. Fari. My first recollection of him was I used to go to breakfast several times a week right over here at the Red Hot Inn, and he was always there every single day at a certain time. And he sat by himself and he had a hat on and it said 95th infantry on it. And it had a, you know, you see veterans wear pins and stuff on their hat, but he had a combat infantryman's badge on his pin. And I knew he was a world war II veteran. And I observed him for several weeks or months, never talked to him. And finally I'm like, I gotta, I gotta go talk to this guy. Uh, We spent a ton of time just talking, drinking coffee. And through that, he brought me to the veterans group. And this veterans group was very unique when I got there because I was by far the youngest guy there. Everybody in that group, most of them were all World War II veterans. Time frame would have been about 2002 was the first time I went there. So there was probably 60 or 70 local World War II veterans who were still alive who went to that group. I'm actually seeing guys here at this group, like you would read about just incredible events that you would see on the History Channel or or study about. These guys were actually there. So I met guys who actually landed at Iwo Jima, who actually parachuted in on Normandy on D-Day. There was a guy who was on the USS Indianapolis. I met guys who unlocked the gates at Dachau. Like these are the kind of guys I got to meet there. And they talked among veterans, among friends, among peers, unvarnished. And these guys are really, really um, the greatest generation, my heroes. I really looked up to these guys. When people look at Europe, everybody thinks of D-Day. Well, D-Day was like, that was the very, very beginning of the campaign. When D-Day happened, there was about four five or six divisions that landed on the beach that day. The 95th is actually known for the campaign and Metz. Leading up to that campaign, that's where Forey and his unit, you know, they were decimated there, really. So they form in 1942. They trained and lived together 24-7, 365 for approximately two years. They're the plank owners. They're the first original organic group of guys that come together to form this division. And once they deploy into France and they deploy into the battlefield, those outfits get consumed by casualties in the battle. So he joined in 42 and he deployed to France with Patton's Third Army and the 95th Infantry and left the battlefield on November 
1944. In the assault in Ammonvillers, before he talked about a guy was was shooting at him, a sniper was shooting at him, and he took a rifle grenade, and a rifle grenade, you put it in the in the end of the barrel of your rifle, and he shot, and it went up in the top of a barn, and he got the guy that was shooting at him. They continue the assault, and Borey went to cross a road, like a platoon is on one side, the other guy's on the other side, and have you ever heard of a German 88? So it's designed to shoot planes out of the sky at tens of thousands of feet. Well, the Germans actually then employed them as anti-tank and then anti-personnel. And the thing that makes this thing so incredible was the velocity of the round. So Forey and his guys, they're moving up the street. And Forey at some point had to, had to cross the street. And there's a German 88, like two miles away, has the street just dialed in. And... A German 88 hits a side for you. So it shoots down the road and blows up and just blows into a cone. So had Forey been completely in that impact zone, I mean, he wouldn't have been alive. I would have never been friends with him. But he's just on the fringe of it. And it catches his his side. It blows a bunch of his gear off. His leg and hip is just destroyed, blown apart. And... He talked about praying at that point, and he said he knew that, that God had comforted him, and he knew he was going to live to see his son. How he knew that, I don't know, but that was his testimony. A couple of his guys run across the road, snatch him up. The German 88 continues to fire. The German infantry is maneuvering on them in a counterattack. So they scoop him up. They run him to the back, to the basically the other side of a a building or a courtyard, another guy grabs him, but they throw him on the hood of a Jeep, not strapped down or anything. The Jeep takes off across the potato field, full bore. Well, guess what's happening to the Jeep? The Jeep is being fired upon. And as before he's trying to hang on, he's blown apart. They go across the potato field up over the hill. The guys never see him again. That's it. It's like what happened to Forrest Johnson. So after Forey was wounded and evacuated off the battlefield on 10 November 1944 from Amonvillers, France. He went into the hospital, recovery, came home. He tried to pick up his life when he got home. He had a son, and his son had lived with his grandparents, which would have been Forey's mom and dad. So as when Forey came home, he tried to connect with his son well, his son didn't really see him as dad because he'd been gone after the hospital recovery and whatnot and all the time in service. He'd been gone nearly four years. So the boy saw grandpa as the father figure. So that was a real struggle um, and then just struggling to being back. But one of the absolute highlights of his life, which he talked about often, like this was like one of his best memories of his life was the 95th Infantry Division Reunion, 1950. So this would have been five years after the war. They had it in Chicago. And somehow, Forey found out about it. So they haven't talked since 10 November 1944, right? Here comes the reunion in 1950. Forey shows up in the afternoon, maybe a day late. I, I don't know. But he, he walks into the hotel in Chicago, and he sees a whole bunch of his friends. And what a story we're hearing, folks. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happens 
when the 50th reunion celebration of the 95th Infantry, well, when all those guys meet the guy they hadn't seen since November 10th, 1944, the story of Fari Johnson continues here on Our American Story. Turn to Our American Stories and Jason Porter telling us the story of his friend and hero, World War II veteran Fari Johnson. Jason picks up the story in 1950 as Fari walks into a reunion full of his old buddies, men who thought that Fari was killed in action fighting Nazis back in 1944. Fari walks up behind him and says, what kind of clown outfit is you guys around here? You give some disparaging remarks, and those guys turn around like they are just going to belt somebody. And they turn around and see Forey Johnson, their platoon member, the guy that they'd seen get blown up in 1944. They haven't seen him since then. <laughs> he described how they just hugged him, and just it was just an incredible, incredible reunion. So they were there four days, and they went on a bender. All right, They had a good time. He said they drank a lot of beer, had a lot of fun, talked about, uh, you know, things that happened on the battlefield after Forey was hit, who survived, who didn't survive. So one of the things that they did is they had a gigantic Nazi flag. If you've seen the giant red flag with a big white background with a swastika in the middle of it, they had a huge one of them that they had pulled off of. Gestapo headquarters in Ham, Germany. Somebody brought this flag out, and over the course of the reunion that was held at this hotel, all the surviving members of his company signed that flag. And that would have been I Company, 375th Regiment of the 95th Infantry Division. But anyway, all those guys signed that flag. So when I met Forey, nearly 50, 60 years later, as members of his company began to dwindle, over the time that flag, each guy would have it for a while, and they'd maybe get a give a talk at a VFW post, a elementary school, stuff like that. So when I met Forey, he had the flag. It was his turn to have the flag. And every now and then he'd bust it out and we'd we'd look at it. We'd look at the names on it. One time we tried to call a couple of the guys on the on the flag. You know, this is kind of pre- Facebook and stuff. It was a little harder to find guys. So we did that one time. He was he was really, really proud of that. And it was just kind of a touchstone of of the war and, and his guys. And to see their names written on it. Because it, it'd be all the guys that he would talk about. I'm like, oh, there he is. And obviously, a lot of the guys aren't on it. They're dead. So through the course of the years and my friendship with them, every year, Forey would invite me to go um, to the division reunion. Well, then the division reunion, it got to there was just nobody there. 2012, I talked to Forey. I said, Forey, that flag really needs to be in a museum. He's like, well, it's not my flag. I can't give it away. Okay. Well, I'm not pushing them or anything, but I'm like, I don't really want to just see it stuffed under a bed or something. Like when you're gone, it, it, it should go somewhere as it means something. 
So he agreed to bring it to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And at this time, there was three guys from his company that were still alive. I set up a meeting with the curator at the museum. I'm like, hey, these veterans are coming in. They have this flag. I told them the background of the flag. You know, they want to pass it off to you. So I pack up for a Johnson, bring him on flight. He's in a wheelchair. I'm pushing him all through security. You know, it, it's quite a chore to get him down there. Once we get down there, Hal Smith and his wife, they roll in, I think, on a motorhome. And the other guy, I can't remember, he comes in and they're just hanging out and talking. And they have the flag. And the next day at noon or one o'clock, we're going to turn the flag over to the museum, right? So I sit back and I just basically serve these guys, bring them sandwiches, bring them drinks. And they're just, they're talking about the war, their life. You know, they're old men, but they're talking like they're 22. And they are, although 65 some years had passed, they are still brothers. They're bonded by their time in service and, and what they did together. So the time is approaching. I'm like, all right, guys, you know, hey, it's 11 o'clock. At one o'clock, we got to be at the museum. Right, guys? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, good, good. Get us another beer. I'm like, all right. And it gets down to one hour. And I'm like, all right, guys, in, a, in, a, in an hour, you know, we, we need to start pack up and, and go. And the museum's ready to, to receive us. And, and I'm like, all right, guys, half hour, you know, let's, let's wrap it up. And uh, I don't remember which one. I want to say it was for you. He turned around. He's like, tell them we're not coming. We'll decide next year. <laughs> The guys didn't want to break up the meeting. They didn't want to give up the flag. They said, decide next year, because that gave them a reason to see each other again. Because if they gave up the flag, they didn't have an excuse to meet up the next year. And well, unfortunately, I witnessed this moment. I, I witnessed the last meeting of this company of men. There was no next year, because by that time next year, they were all gone. And Forey, was the last man to have the flag, and he was the last one from that unit to be alive. I don't know what happened to the flag now. He wanted it, it, something meaningful to happen with it, so maybe it is in the museum. I, I, I don't know. I was sitting right next to him the last time that I spoke with him. He kept it in a briefcase right next to his chair, and I visited with him seven or eight days before he, before he died, and it was sitting there. Forey Johnson lived several blocks from church where my wife and I attended church and I would go down the road and, and visit for a, have coffee, have breakfast. And one day I walked up to his house, the screen door was open. He had his breakfast in front of him and he was in the middle of praying and he was praying out loud. So I just kind of paused. I didn't want to barge in on him or interrupt him. And I couldn't help but overhearing him a little bit. And it was it was amazing to hear him just sim simple prayers of of an elderly man talking to god and he thanked god for saving his life in world war 2 his little boy that was 4 or 5 years old and came back he later died when he was very very young and he talked about wanting to see his son he talked about his surviving children and wanting them to know god and know christ and the line I always remember is like, help me do good stuff and not bad stuff. Amen.
And I paused for a minute and then I walked in and said, hey, Jason, how are you doing? Get the coffee, this and that. So after the New Orleans uh, handing off the flag incident, where we didn't actually hand off the flag, I believe it was the following summer, I get a random phone call. It's a voicemail from Forey. It said, hey, why don't you and Valerie come over? Bring the kids. Bring your swim trunks. We're going to have a party and... Uh, it's on Tuesday afternoon at four. You know, who has a party at four in the afternoon on a Tuesday? Well, four he did. And he's like, I'm, I, I want to see you guys. I'm getting down to the end, you know, and, and uh, I want to see you. And then he just abruptly hung up the phone. And I wrote, he lived, he lived at a T intersection. I rolled up there on Tuesday afternoon at four. And I'm not kidding you. There was, Cars lining the street, both sides of the street, all three directions for two blocks at this guy's house. 90-some-year-old man. It was his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, all of his friends that he worked with at GM, all of his guys that were still alive from the, the, the veterans group. It was absolutely packed. You almost needed uh, you know, traffic control there. I couldn't believe it. And I was, I was so happy and he was very happy. And one of the things he said, he was, we were sitting around talking. He's like, Hey, why does everybody wait for the funeral to do this? And I think he kind of knew that was in August and then he died January 1st. It was just so, so wonderful to see all those people turn out for him. It was just a real privilege to know, to know him. It's like those, him and all, all of his peer group were my heroes and getting to spend that time was valuable because, you know, when I met all those guys in, in the early 2000s, you know, 10 years later, they're, they're not around. We don't get to hear their voices anymore. We get to read it off a page. You know, he certainly wasn't a perfect guy or anything, but he was very, very genuine and uh, he was my best friend. You know, although we were 50 some years separated, he was my best friend for a long time. And uh, I miss him. And you've been listening to Jason Porter talking about his friend, Fari Johnson. And Jason made an important decision that one day when he decided not to just say hello and move on to that old guy sitting there with a the hat that indicated he fought in World War II. He got to know him. And we should all do that, by the way, with soldiers and just strangers because that person could end up being your best friend and you can end up learning a whole lot about life from them and i keep thinking about those simple prayers of an elderly man god help me do good stuff and not bad stuff and a special thanks to charlotte carosa who is a hillsdale graduate and does special work for us bringing us stories like these just beautiful stories Corey johnson's story in a way jason porter's too here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And all week this week, we're celebrating the U.S. Constitution on September 17th, 
1787, our founders signed the document, and it became our one and only and longest-lasting constitution on the planet Earth. And it is a beautiful document and worth celebrating and knowing. And all week long, we've been hearing from some of the titans of constitutional law, storytelling, and the like. And today we're hearing from one of the great minds, one of the great people that one could ever know, Antonin Scalia. He was nominated and appointed by President Ronald Reagan in 1986. He was an associate justice on the Supreme Court from 1986 to 2016. He died on February 13, 2016. And by the way, Justice Elena Kagan, who was nominated by Barack Obama, called him one of the most important Supreme Court justices ever, and also one of the greatest. And the thing about Scalia is he loved to teach. He loved to go around the country talking to students anywhere he could find them, high schools, colleges, law schools, even seminaries, and even the U.S. Senate, where he ended up one day, in the end, teaching and schooling U.S. senators about the Constitution and what makes it great. And in this particular clip, this story you're about to hear, Scalia explains what he has to deal with and what he tries to teach when talking to young student groups around the country. Let's take a listen. When when I speak to these groups, the first point I I make, I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in, in our Constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if, if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that that is wonderful stuff. Of course, just words on paper, what, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. So the the real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. 
There are very few countries in the world, for example, that, that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a, a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. A and when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary. Because the Europeans don't even try to divide the, the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, the chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and, the, and, and the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When, when there's a disagreement, they just kick him out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at this system and they say, well, it passes one house, it doesn't pass the other house. Sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party. It passes both, and then this president who has a veto power vetoes it, and they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock. And, and I, I hear Americans saying this nowadays, and there's a lot of it going around. They, they talk about a dysfunctional government be, be, because there's disagreement, and, 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 they, and the framers would have said yes. That's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power, because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate. He said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection. If, if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair, it doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into, into, this, into this complex system. So Americans should, uh, should appreciate that, and, and they should learn to love the gridlock. It's, it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will, will be good legislation. And what a profound thing to talk about. And by the way, when you think about all the separation of powers and how difficult it is to get a bill through both houses, the House and the Senate, and again, the Senate gets six years, so they're elected differently, and not all at once in the House, that every two years, everybody is up for re-election. And the founders did that on purpose. And we need to know these things, because there's a reason why we are the country we are. By the way, the other dispersal of power that's fundamental to understanding the Constitution is this thing called federalism. And that is simply this, that the federal government, well, it was not in charge. That all of the power, not specifically enumerated in the Constitution, was retained by the states. And we did that to keep power close to home with people we trust, with people we know, 
people we could just go and visit at our local state legislatures. And so you were listening to Justice Scalia. And by the way, Dr. Larry Arn, that is on the website. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's the president of Hillsdale College. And what an hour and a half we spent with him. We also have Thomas Paine on the website. You hear from Common Sense and why? Because Dr. Arn said without that pamphlet, without that writing from Thomas Paine, George Washington said there would not have been a constitution, let alone a declaration of independence and a revolutionary war. So all of it we're doing for you here on Our American Stories, the story of our Constitution, the story of our great country, and all of it is brought to us by and sponsored by Stetson Family Office. And the Stetson Family Office believes that it is important for young people to know the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. And you can go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org to learn more. That's www.constitutioncurriculum.org. And as always, go to hillsdale.edu too. Their Constitution 101 course in this week in which we're celebrating the Constitution. Sit down and watch it. It's free and by some of the best teachers you'll ever see. I went to a great law school, folks, at the University of Virginia, and I learned more sitting in on a couple of Dr. Orange classes than in three years at UVA. The story of America, the story of our Constitution and our founders continues here. Constitution Week, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamer series, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And they're always fighting for policies that help small businesses turn into big ones. And for small business owners and entrepreneurs who ultimately live their version of the American dream. And now we come to our next American Dreamer story, brought to us by our very own Joey Cortez. The book is tiered for... That's Dr. Luis Tomatis, a world-renowned heart surgeon out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, who started a little after-hours tradition that he features in his book, Tea at Four. At four o'clock, I have tea with cookies. And at the beginning, I will invite some people. And in a short time, they invite the people who heard about this. And now, four to five times a week, I have a guest to have tea. I had politicians come, the director of hospitals come, priests, rabbis, ministers, and I learned from each one of them. Really, I learned, I learned what, what are they thinking in this time, in this moment in America. But in reality, he's more of a source of comfort and wisdom to his guests. And for good reason. Luis has lived a storied life. Now 90 years old, Luis was born in Argentina, where he served in its cavalry, played rugby, and attended medical school. At the age of 26 years old, he went to Detroit for his medical internship, studying at the Henry Ford Hospital, one of the first hospitals in the world to train open-heart surgeons. And they would train one of the best. I couldn't have done this in Argentina. I couldn't have done this in Europe. If you could have done in Europe, why I'm recruiting so many people from Europe to come here? And they don't come for the pay. 
I remember one of the researchers that I brought from Sweden that was very, is very well known in Europe as a researcher. I asked, why did you come here? He said, Luis, where I was, I was on the top. When I came to Grand Rapids, I am in the base. And this is a man that must be 58, that assumed that he still has 20, 30 years to give. But in Europe, it was done. This is what we don't realize in America, that we have this incredible gift to be whatever we want to be. Louise moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he would also move his girlfriend from Argentina and marry her. At the time, Grand Rapids was a small place. Louise says only one restaurant was open on Sundays. Today, there are countless, in part because Louise helped put Grand Rapids on the map as a hub of the medical industry. It all started with the man whose life Dr. Louise would help save, Rich DeVos, the founder of the health, beauty, and home care products company, Amway. In his late 60s, Rich started developing heart problems and sought Louise's help. He underwent multiple bypass surgeries, but that wouldn't be enough. We're following this and got the conclusion that there is no other solution that a transplant. There's no way we can repair that. I investigated the whole United States transplant and I told them about a 71-year-old man with all the problems that he had, an infection that he got when he went to Cleveland that I had to repair three times. And everybody said, sorry, no dice. Nobody accepted in the United States. They don't operate people at that age without complications. So Dr. Louise looked elsewhere. He found a doctor in Europe that agreed to do the operation. They were in luck. The only foreigners the team could work on were the ones with Rich's rare blood type because there were more heart donors in Europe with that blood type than recipients. Six to eight hearts would go unused a year in Europe. The operation would be a success and Rich would go on to live another 21 years. The thing he did in these 20 years were fantastic. He donated from his own money $1 billion. Rich was a visionary, but was not a man of details. After he bought the idea, he would say, do it. And he had absolute trust in the sense that he didn't say, okay, report to me or tell me, do it. And imagine the huge responsibility when he said, do it, and you did it, and he trusts me 100%. One day, Rich says, why don't we start transplant here? We decided, I said, Rich, if we are going to have transplant here, we should bring a top man in transplant to start. And then he will train everybody. At the time, Dr. Louise was a heart and lung surgeon at Butterworth Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He brought over from Europe one of the best heart surgeons in the world and got to work. They would create a team of heart surgeons that could rival the best in any major city in America. Meanwhile, Rich DeVos conducted the merger between Butterworth Hospital and another local hospital, creating what would become Spectrum Health. 
which is now a network of 14 hospitals across Michigan, employing 31,000 staff and 4,300 doctors and advanced healthcare professionals. We'll sit down and say, well, finally, it happened, Rich. Rich would say, you did it. And I said, Rich, I didn't do it. We did it. Because if I would have done it alone, nobody would have listened. And Rich says, if, you, if we wouldn't have talked, I would have never thought of that. And that is why it was a perfect combination. The, the thing that I treasure the most is the trust that these men had on me. The trust. Rich entrusted Dr. Luis with another task. Make cardiovascular surgery more affordable. The two of them conducted some of the earliest medical cost-saving studies and found that most hospitals could afford to trim some fats, finding that they could save their patients upwards to 25% in cost. And so, Spectrum Health responded. They are consistently in the lowest 25% of cost compared to hospitals of similar size in the nation, translating to prices that are significantly less than other hospital prices. This, Dr. Luis hopes, will encourage other hospitals to follow suit, making healthcare more affordable to more Americans. There are many physicians that realize that we need this change. If we can change that, I can die happy. And in the meantime, Dr. Luis sits down with people for TF4 to help them with their happiness. He lets them talk their own way through their problems and ideas and drops nuggets of wisdom along the way. Many of the people come and tell me, I, I think I found the girl or the boy who is going to make me happy. I said, would, be, would you be willing to put it in another way? I find the person that I can happy can make happy the rest of my days. If you think in that term, it will work. If you think in the other term, you may be frustrated. Love is giving, not receiving. You receive because you give. Which is exactly what Dr. Luis is doing with all his guests, giving them his time, his energy, wisdom, and friendship. I feel in some way I'm contributing. I've been surprised of people of very high positions that had to make important decisions and don't have anybody to talk about the important decision. And they need to be heard to help these, these people think, just to give some time peace for them. Uh, there are some people who have made terrible mistakes in their life. But life doesn't finish until they bury you. And, you know, and this applies especially many, many people, many minorities that feel they are very heavy, heavily loaded with their past. And I always tell them the same, look, you have only one life to live. One life to live. What you don't do in this period of life that you don't never know when it finishes, you will never do it before. And remember one thing, nobody cares. Remember one thing, if you are a failure, 
nobody cares. If you succeed, they will respect you and so on. But it's only in one life to live. If your grandmother was such, oh, nobody cares. They ask you, and what are you going to do in this period of life? This is why I'm eternal optimist. And you see in the back of the book is my philosophy. Age is inevitable, but to be old is optional. And you've been listening to Dr. Luis Tomatis. My goodness, that final sentence is just terrific. Age is inevitable, but to be old is optional. Beautiful words. And by the way, Dr. Luis also worked with Rich's business partner, Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel, launching the $60 million Van Andel Institute in 1995 that does cutting-edge research on cancer epigenetics and Parkinson's disease. It's the kind of work that's contributed to making Grand Rapids what it is today. And by the way, you can find Dr. Tomatis' book, T at 4, at SchulerBooks.com. That's SchulerBooks.com. Our American Dreamer's story, Dr. Luis Tomatis' story, here on Our American Stories.